This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Indianapolis, Highway 74, by Sam Shepard, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 2009. Then she does an amazing thing. She whips off the blue bandana and shakes out a mane of red hair that topples almost to her waist. Now it all comes back. Oh, it's you, I say, still unable to attach a name. The story was chosen by Dave Eggers, who's the author of 12 books, including the novels A Hologram for the King and Heroes of the Frontier, and the memoir A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Hi, Dave. Hey, Deborah. How are you? Welcome. Tell me about you and Sam Shepard's work. Are you a long, long-time fan of his plays or his, his prose? Um. You know, I encountered the uh, plays first. Um, it must have been when he was at the Magic Theater in San Francisco. At some point, I wrote him a letter, and um, I sent him a book that I wrote, and it was all dialogue. It was sort of like a play, but it was a novel, but just happened to be all dialogue. And I had read that he grew up or was born in Fort Sheridan, Illinois, which is about a mile from where I grew up. So I sort of wrote him a letter with that as the opening question and he was very kind he wrote back in a few weeks and um i think he said that he wasn't born in fort sheridan but he just said that because it sounded good or something (laughs) i think he denied having been born there but it's in, in all of his official biographies but um you know it was this military base that was you know just down the street from me that we used to play at and um i thought it was so great that uh he had some connection to my uh lake michigan childhood but i was just very uh moved to to hear back from him and um because i'd never met him didn't know me from adam but you know i've always felt in so many ways uh uh, just admiration for him on like 19 different levels do you think that the way he uses dialogue in in the plays had some influence on the book you sent him yeah i a little bit obviously he's his dialogue is so precise but it's so uh, thoroughly American and conversational at the same time. It's hard to pull off. There's never a word that seems out of place or sort of too fancy for its context or uh, tonally off. Um, but the cumulative power of his uh, seemingly everyday conversational English is uh, profound. And um, maybe that was his his gift, was sort of recording perfectly accurate American English, um, and especially English from rural America, I guess, even though he's, ta- you know, his background is all over mm-hmm. the U.S. But yeah, you know, I when I was in New York, um, I lived there for God, a couple years, and uh, the, I, I got to see some plays that, it's the first time I'd ever seen plays in New York, and I got to see that great production of True West with uh, John C. Riley and and Philip Seymour Hoffman where they traded who played mm-hmm. who uh, night mm-hmm. after night. And uh, it was uh, just one of the best experiences I've ever had in the theater because I loved both of those actors so much and they were so perfect in the roles that I saw them in and, I, and you couldn't possibly imagine them in any other role and then they would flip it the next night, which I thought <laughs> was just absolutely genius. One thing that we'll hear him doing with 
speech and dialogue in the story is that it's not just that he captures how Americans speak, it's that he captures how awkward we are, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and how he has such an ear for how inept we are at expressing things <laughs> aloud. Shepard and his characters always have a little bit more of a slow-talking, laconic way. And you never find, like, a real fast-talking, or rarely, I think, fast-talking Sam Shepard character, you know? There's a sort of a, a casual precision to the language that I think is really his, both in his plays and as an actor. Um, mm-hmm. There's something very deliberate about it, and he uses words like just like a hammer punching nails, you know, just even if the syntax is a little awkward and the sentences don't always end, you know, they people interrupt each other and, and fumble a bit, but um, there's kind of a sneaky precision to it. Yeah. Well, I think we should dive into the story now, and we'll talk some more afterwards. All right. Now here's Dave Eggers reading Indianapolis, Highway 74, by Sam Shepard. Indianapolis, Highway 74. I've been crisscrossing the country again without much reason. Sometimes the place will just pop into my head and I'll take off. This time down through normal Illinois from high up in white Minnesota, dead of winter, icy roads, wind blowing sideways across the empty cornfields. Find myself stopping for the night outside Indianapolis, off 74, just before it makes its sweeping junction with 65 South to Louisville. I randomly pick a Holiday Inn more for its familiar green logo and predictability than anything else. Plus, I'm wiped out. Evidently, there's some kind of hot rod convention going on in town, although I seem to remember those always taking place at the height of summer, when people can run around in convertible coupes with the tops down. Anyway, there are no rooms available except possibly one, and that one is smoking, which I have nothing against. The desk clerk tells me she'll know in about ten minutes if there's going to be a cancellation. I'm welcome to wait, so I do, not wanting to face another 90-some miles down to Kentucky through threatening weather. I collapse into one of the overstuffed sofas in the lobby, facing two plasma screen TVs in opposite corners, both tuned to the same reality channel, showing surveillance footage of convenience store robberies, teenagers in hooded sweatshirts holding up their baggy jeans with one hand while the other pumps 9mm slugs into screaming victims, who claim they have no access to the safe. I ask the desk clerk if she can please turn the TVs off or change the channel, but she says that she has no control over it. The TVs are on some kind of preordained computer system, much like sprinklers in Los Angeles or garage security lights everywhere else. I ask her if she can at least mute the sound so that I don't have to listen to the agonized groans of the victims or the raging insanity of the gunmen, but she says that she has no control over that either. I pick up a travel magazine featuring Caribbean vacations from the glass table and leaf through it, pausing at every picture of a bikini-clad woman lounging beachside holding a tall icy cocktail and staring smugly at the camera. The screams and groans and gunfire from the TVs keep repeating in loop cycles and soon lose all sense of being connected to murder. I find myself anticipating the next scream the way you would a familiar lyric in a pop song. Here comes the high, shrieking, temper tantrum sequence just after he pops off a rapid spray of shots. 
I'm not sure how long I hang there in limbo in the lobby, but it feels like far more than ten minutes. A tall, skinny woman in a cloth Pat Nixon-type coat and a blue bandana comes through the revolving doors, pulling a small suitcase on wheels. She smiles at me as she passes, and I feel immediately sad for no reason that I can put my finger on. She pauses at the desk to get her key, then continues toward the elevators, giving me a quick glance over her shoulder as she disappears down the hallway. Again, I feel this little stab of melancholy or emptiness. Maybe that's it. I stand and stretch, then walk over to the desk and ask the girl if she knows anything more about the cancellation. Not yet, she says, but reassures me that the possible guests will be calling any second now. They're coming in from Tupelo, Mississippi, with a trailer load of hot rods, and everything depends on the weather, she says. I return to the squashy sofa and collapse again. Isn't Tupelo where Elvis was born? I notice the yellow spine of a National Geographic at the bottom of a stack on the glass table and dig it out. The feature story is titled The Black Pharaohs, Conquerors of Ancient Egypt. A man who looks very much like the young James Earl Jones is on the cover, his muscular arms crossed over his chest with a leopard-skin cape, thick gold necklaces, and a gold-leaf skullcap with two shining cobras on the crown, staring stoically out. I am flipping through the glossy pages when I feel a tall presence beside me and hear a high-pitched female voice saying my name with a question mark behind it. Stuart? I turn to see the same skinny woman in her cloth coat, but without the suitcase. You don't remember me, do you? She asks. I stare into her green eyes, searching for something to recognize, but the same tinge of melancholy is all I get. 1965, she says with a little sigh. 10th Street and 2nd Avenue, St. Mark's Church. I'm drawing a blank, I confess. I've been driving for days, what seems like days anyway. She laughs nervously, half embarrassed, then stares at the carpet. We lived together for a while, don't you remember? We'd get up every morning and sit on the edge of my mattress eating bowls of wheat germ with brown honey all over it. Oh, I say, and keep staring into her eyes with mounting desperation wondering if maybe I've snapped some fragile synapse in my brain from too much driving. The final breakdown of road madness right here in Indianapolis. Then she does an amazing thing. She whips off the blue bandana and shakes out a mane of red hair that topples almost to her waist. Now it all comes back. Oh, it's you, I say, still unable to attach a name. Who, she giggles. You don't remember me at all, do you? Of course I do. You're just saying that. No. Then what's my name? Come on. It wasn't that long ago. 1965, I say. Or six. No, it couldn't have been. Maybe 68. That was it. That's still 40 years ago. No, she laughs. Add it up. Yeah, I guess it was, wasn't it? Beth, right? I blurt out. No, see, you don't remember. Betty? Close. What then? This is wearing me out. Becky, she announces with a beaming smile and her arms wide open, as if I were about to jump up and embrace her. Sure, Becky, that's right, Becky, of course. What's my last name? Oh, please, I can't keep up with this. I'm really wiped out. Thane, she says. Thane? Thane, Becky Marie Thane. Right, I say. You really don't have any recollection at all, do you? She says in almost a whisper, then stifles a little chuckle. 
She crosses her long arms and holds her shoulder softly, as though filling the blank of affection she wishes were coming from me. I was so in love with you, Stuart, she says, sighing, and her eyes drift down to the pink wall-to-wall carpeting with pizza stains and Pepsi splashes. The violent sounds of the surveillance loop keep mercilessly repeating. I notice the girl behind the desk giving us a sideways glance, then returning to the bright green glow of her computer screen. There is no escape. Becky Marie Thane lets her long arms fall to her sides and surrender, the blue bandana dangling from her right hand. I return the National Geographic to the glass table, and then I do suddenly get a picture of that time, a fleeting memory of a morning facing a New York window with a bowl clenched between my naked knees, and I say, just to be saying something, your hair is even redder than I remember, which makes her burst out laughing, happy that I haven't abandoned the game. It's not real, she says. What? I say, thinking she's referring to something metaphysical. The color, Clairol, out of a bottle. Oh, uh, well, it looks great. Thanks. Very uh, festive. Festive? She giggles and fluffs the back of her head like a movie star. Then she gets embarrassed again and twists herself from side to side. So how old were we then? I stumble on without really wanting to. We were kids, she says. We were barely in our 20s. Were we? I was anyway. I know that much. Kids, yeah, I guess. How many do you have, she asks. Her green eyes meet mine, and the little twinge of sadness I was feeling turns into an undertow. You mean children? She nods, and her eyes stay hooked to me. I've got a whole bunch, I say. How many, she insists. Five, but not all with the same woman. That doesn't surprise me, she smiles. How about you, I ask. Two, I have two girls. Two, that's great. Where are they, I say. Here, well, I mean, that's right. You're from Indianapolis, aren't you? Yes, I am. You remember that, she smiles. I remember your dad calling back then, when we were sitting on the bed, eating that stuff. Wheat germ. Right, he called to tell you there was a riot going on in your front yard. So it must have been 68, wasn't it? That was when there was a riot every other day. Must have been. Martin Luther King and... Right. Everything exploding. Detroit. L.A. The whole world on fire. Seemed like. Well, she pauses, fishing for something more. I didn't mean to. I mean, I was so shocked when I walked through the door and saw you sitting there. I couldn't believe it. I knew it was you as soon as I saw you, but I thought, I can't just walk on by and not say anything. You know, just go on up to my room and pretend it wasn't you. I had to come back down and say something. I mean, all this time. No, I'm glad you did. It's great to see you. What in the world are you doing here in Indianapolis? Just passing through. Oh. How about you? I mean, if you live here, how come you're in a Holiday Inn? Everything stops. She goes suddenly numb and her lips start to tremble. For some reason, the background seems to have gone silent. The girl at the desk stares at us now, as though she suspects that something illegal is going on. My husband, Becky says, and halts on the words. My husband disappeared a month and a half ago. He just took off. Oh, no, I say. He took the girls. No. He may have left the country. I find myself standing and making a feeble gesture toward comforting her, but I'd rather be running out the door. Have you, I mean, do you have help? My mouth has gone dry. Police? Lawyers? 
yes, I've gone through all that. That's a pretty serious, I mean, that's considered kidnapping, isn't it? It is kidnapping. Have you got any clues? I mean, we followed some credit card debts, you know, gas stations, restaurants, but they all led to dead ends. Everything winds up in Florida and just stops. Florida? He has some family down there. What about the girls? How old are they? Fifteen and seventeen. There's still some investigation going on at the house, so that's why I can't stay there. Oh. I just took a room here for the time being. I'm kind of in limbo, I guess. She casts an arm out limply, and the blue bandana flutters up like a distant flag of truce. Her eyes scan the two plasma screens as the screaming and the gunfire start up again. I'm sorry, she says. I didn't mean to lay all this on you. I just saw you sitting there when I came in and thought, No, that's okay. I'm glad you... It's just great to see you again. She laughs, then breaks down, but quickly recovers herself and turns her shoulder to me. I move to console her, but she turns her back completely and crosses her arms again. The desk clerk is heading straight for me across the lobby with her laminated name tag pinned to her chest in an apologetic face. I'm sorry, sir, she says, but they've just confirmed that room I was telling you about. That smoking room with two beds. Oh, I say. Yeah, they just phoned in to confirm it. They're on their way. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. There's a Motel 6 just off 465. They usually might have a vacancy. If you want, I can call down there to see if they've got something. Would you mind doing that? I'd appreciate it very much. No problem. I'll let you know. She heads back to her post. Becky seems to have pulled herself together now. Her arms drop, and she starts brushing off the front of her coat as though she'd just discovered lint. She turns to me with a smile and rubs her eyes with the back of her hand. Well, I'm so glad I ran into you, Stuart. You look the same as always. She steps toward me with her hand extended, which I find slightly ineffectual under the circumstances, but I go along with it. Her hand feels icy and slim, and she slides it back out of my grip almost immediately. Then she gives me a little peck on the cheek, like a sister might. It all comes back to me now, the smell of her soft breath. Bye, she says abruptly, and walks away, disappearing down the hallway again. If I had a gun right now, I'd shoot both the plasma TV screens and maybe the overstuffed sofa, and then maybe I'd start in on the glass coffee table with the Caribbean vacation brochure, and all the time in Newsweek magazines with men of the year on their covers. Instead, I walk back over to the desk where the girl with the laminated name is being surprisingly helpful. I get close enough to read the tag as she squishes the foam between her chin and her collarbone while scratching down a note. LaShandra, the tag says, and it has a little yellow happy face to go with it. LaShandra, I say to her, not knowing exactly which syllable to emphasize. She squints at me and holds a blue lacquered fingernail to her lips as though she were about to land a luxury suite down at the Motel 6. I signal to her that I no longer want the room by drawing my index finger across my throat, then head for the revolving doors. LaChandra calls out to me in dismay. Sir, excuse me, sir. I turn back to her. Don't you want the room? I think I might have found you something. No thanks, but I do appreciate your efforts. You're very kind. Oh, no problem at all, sir. Sorry it didn't work out. LaChandra, could I ask you a quick question? Sure, sir. Anything at all. Don't you ever go crazy listening to that TV all night long? That murder? Oh, I don't even hear it anymore. You know, it's just always on. She smiles and I pass through the revolving doors. The pistol shots fade behind the glass.
Outside, it's dark, snowflakes floating through orange light. I completely forgot that I had left the car running, and my yellow dog is clawing frantically at the windows, seeing me approach. I let her out the back. She slides across a patch of ice as she hits the asphalt. Her tail is wagging wildly in circles as though she'd picked up the scent of a quail. She dashes off toward a little square of brown grass to take a leak. The temperature feels like it's dropped down into the low 20s now, and the flying snow makes my eyes tear up. The dog must be taking the longest piss on earth. She just squats there with one hind leg weirdly raised, staring straight at me as though I might run off without her. Steam rises behind her. The hollow moan of the highway makes me wonder if I've finally broken all connections without even really wanting to. I pop my dog back in the car and slide into the driver's seat, which is now red hot since I also left the seat warmer on. I'm about to drop the gear shift down into drive when I look up through the snow and there she is, Becky Marie Thane, standing directly between the headlights, staring at me with a look not unlike my dog's. She's standing there shivering without her coat and the snow catches hold of her red hair and it glows in the backlight like a halo. Am I now having a religious experience? She comes running up to the window as I roll it down, amazed. I'm sorry, she says. I just thought maybe you'd want to stay in my room since you can't... I mean, I have a couch and everything, a separate couch. It's a fold-out, you know, in an alcove with a sink. Not a whole room exactly, but I just thought it would save you a trip in this weather. I'm not trying to, you know... Oh, thanks, Becky, I say, cutting her off. I really appreciate it, but I ought to be getting down down the road. All right, that's fine, that's fine, she smiles. I just thought I'd offer. I wasn't trying to. No, thanks so much, though. It was really great to see you again. Bye, she says sweetly and gives me a little fluttering wave then blows me a kiss as I drive off. I watch in the rearview mirror as she darts back into the lobby, stomping the snow off her shoes at the entrance. I'm trying to think of what old movie this reminds me of. One of those corny black-and-white 40s Air Force films with tearful goodbyes as Jimmy Stewart flies off into the wild blue yonder. Why is everything I'm conjuring up in black and white? The snow is really assaulting the windshield as I head for the Louisville Junction, the dog turning tight circles in the back then dropping down into a ball and tucking her nose into her tail, resigning herself to yet another hundred miles of bleak highway. I start drifting off into the past as the world gets dimmer and whiter, Maybe there's a correlation between external blindness and internal picturing. I can see the edge of the mattress now and our gray bowls side by side, our knees touching. These are some of the other things that go sailing through my head as I strain to keep the car between the lines. Leaving the desert on a clear day, boarding the Greyhound, getting off in Times Square, huge poster of a pop group from England with three stooges haircuts. Blood bank with a sign in the window offering $5 a pint. Black whores with red hair. Chet Baker standing in a doorway on Avenue C. Thompson Square Park with its giant dripping American elms. Cabbage and barley soup. Hearing Polish for the first time. Old world women in bandanas and overcoats. Cubans playing chess. Rumors of acid and TCP. Crowds gathered around a black limo listening to a radio report of Kennedy's killing. Jungles burning with napalm, caskets covered in American flags, mules hauling Martin Luther King Jr.'s coffin, Stanley Turrentine carrying his axe in a paper sack. 
I'm turning around. I'm in the middle of a blizzard, and I'm turning around. I come up on a giant tractor-trailer rig jackknifed in a ditch. No sign of a driver. I'm up over the median now with the hazard lights flashing, hoping that nothing is roaring down on top of me from the opposite lanes. I'm driving blind. I'd get over to the shoulder, but I can't tell where it is. Something is happening to my eyesight in the constant oncoming flow and swirl of snow. I feel as if I'm suddenly falling through space and the wheels have somehow lost all contact with the earth. I really am coming completely apart now, shaking, terrible shivers gripping the wheel as if any second I could just go plunging off into the abyss and never be found. Somehow I instinctively poke my way back through the gray to the looping exit and limp into the Holiday Inn parking lot. The family from Tupelo are unloading their huge crew cab diesel in the whirling storm, sliding their coolers and luggage across the icy blacktop. I just sit there for a while, watching them through the wipers, my hazard lights still flashing and my dog getting very nervous about what may lie ahead. Maybe I'll just spend the night in the car, I think. Wait it out. That would mean leaving the engine running so that I wouldn't freeze to death. That would mean that the dog would be whining and turning in circles. I snap on my satellite radio for some possible clue. The angelic voice of Sam Cooke. I can't take it. I turn it off, not wanting to provoke a total emotional breakdown. Can I just sit here all night like this? Engine running, dog spinning, lights blinking, snow falling. What will happen when the sun finally comes out and the snow stops and the ice melts and the whole landscape is transformed into spring and stuff is blooming and farmers are running their gigantic combines up and down the long rows? What will happen then? Will I still be sitting here like this with the car running? What will happen when they discover that someone is trying to live in his car in the Holiday Inn parking lot? I've got to get this car parked. So I do, and then one thing leads to another, and I'm heading back into the lobby, not really looking forward to encountering LaShondra again, not really looking forward to waiting in line behind the Tupelo hot rod family. But there I am. Thank God the TV channel has changed. Now it's news with some distinguished-looking dude in a suit, parading back and forth in front of a huge electronic map of the United States, magically touching it and brushing it in different areas, causing it to light up red in the south, blue in the north, giving the impression that the whole damn country is a cartoon show, divided up like apple pie, and no one actually lives here, trying to score a simple room at the Holiday Inn in the middle of a blizzard somewhere on the outskirts of Indianapolis. The Tupelo family finally trundle off with all their gear toward the smoking room I once coveted. LaShondra's face is unsure what expression to make when she sees me pathetically standing there again. It's a cross between smiling politeness and sheer terror at what she must see in my eyes. LaShondra, hi, I say meekly. She says nothing. I was wondering if you could do me a favor. I, the storm is really bad out there. You wouldn't believe it. That's what they were saying, she says, those folks from Tupelo. It's unbelievable, whiteout. I could barely see the hood in front of me. They've got it on the news, she says, all the way down into New Orleans, I guess. Really? Well, I couldn't. I had to turn back around. I still haven't got any vacancy, though, she says. No, I know. I know that. But what I was wondering is, I have an old friend here. That woman, you know, uh, that woman I was talking to before? That tall, skinny woman with the red hair? Right, she says. Well, I was wondering if you could give me a room number because she offered to let me stay in her room and... 
We're not allowed to give out the names of guests, sir. No, I know. I mean, I know her name. Her name is Becky Marie Thane, and we used to live together in New York City. Way back, I mean. Well, I still can't just give out the room number, sir. That's our policy. I understand that, but do you think I could call her then? On the house phone? Would that be all right? Sure, I can let you do that. Let me get you connected. She slides the house phone toward her, looks up Becky's room number, punches it in, then hands me the receiver. I'm holding it to my ear, hoping that LaChandra will stop staring at me and turn her back discreetly, but she stays right there, eyes boring into mine. Becky picks up. Hello, she says, and the simple innocence of her voice starts me weeping and I can't stop, and LaChandra finally turns away. That was Dave Eggers reading Indianapolis, Highway 74, by Sam Shepard. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 2009 and was included in his collection, Day Out of Days, which was published by Knopf in 2010. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dave, the story opens with this man, Stuart, just aimlessly crisscrossing the country, driving south through Minnesota, going through normal Illinois to Indianapolis. Do you think that that trajectory is meaningful to the story. You know, he tells us it's random. It's it's an idea that pops into his head for no reason. But why would you randomly decide to drive through Minnesota in the dead of winter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, especially since it seems like he's trying to, you would think he's going south trying to get out of the snow, but he's running into a blizzard in uh, Kentucky, which there aren't too many of those. He's, he's heading to Louisville, from, and he's just outside Indianapolis yeah. when, he, when this snowstorm hits. Yeah, I, I believe it. And in some of his other stories, there's, there's a lot of roads and highways and, um, and meandering. I think uh, Shepard really has a feel for rural America and um, what it's like to uh, have that kind of freedom uh, to kind of go and be anywhere you, you want to be, I think, in in his own life. You know, he lived in so many different places, and um, I could see it. I don't, I've only had a few um, road trips that were that aimless, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. secretly maybe, maybe there's something that uh, there's some motive that is there that's not expressed in the, uh, in the story. But I like the fact that we don't really know yeah. Uh, where he's going and where he's coming from, and we don't know much about his people and who he's connected to. And so it gives it um, a nice tension 
to start with. And we, when we find out that he might be at least 60, I think it adds uh, uh, even more sort of, I don't know, pathos or... Yeah, or, a certain sadness to it. Yeah. Because on, on the one hand, he has the freedom to pick up and go wherever he, he gets an idea to go. But on the other hand, um, he seems to, to be sort of desperately running away from something, you know, well, throughout the story. But I want to pause there. Yeah. And I want to ask you about this because he expresses it a little bit in the story that he's uh, obviously is not a happy-go-lucky guy in the story and he's weeping <laughs> at the end. But there's something, I mean, this is what I think uh, attracts a lot of people and always has attracted people to uh, this country is just uh, how much room there is, you know, the interstate highways and uh you really can go drive off and never see anybody you've ever known again. And um, I love that as sort of a concept. And I also like the concept that maybe sometimes people are just going, not necessarily running away, but going because instead of going from something or running from something, they're going to something. I like the idea of allowing him or anybody to go without motive. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, without a reason. It's like yeah, we yeah. always, uh, we have to ascribe, you know, we always have to think like, if you're not at home, you're running, you know, or whatever. But, but in the end, uh, the adventure itself, it, it's a goal in itself. And I think we can allow and validate it sometimes. On the other hand, you, you often feel, especially in stories about driving, that if you're not running from something, you're looking for something. Mm. And yeah. it seems possible that he's looking for something. He may not know what it is. Well, right. Yeah, I like that. I mean, he, he inadvertently <laughs> found it. I think that this other recently lost soul, somebody in a state of uh, real crisis and something and in a situation that would, could be unimaginably painful. But for a moment, they can kind of harken back to a more innocent and simple time 40 years ago and maybe relive it for a night. And I think that they both kind of dance around whether or not they want to do that. Well, on the other hand, he's he's kind of desperate to get away. You know, he, he basically hightails it out of, the, out of the motel as soon as she goes to her room. I think it's too much, right? Too much yeah, too soon. It's, it's just, you know, it, it came as a shock. She had had time upstairs to think about, she recognized him right away and then had time to say, okay, do I want to do this? Do I want to approach this guy? Do, do I want to welcome him back in even for a night? But he hasn't had that. When she uh, visits him and, and you know introduces herself or recognizes him, he doesn't have that time, I think, to sort of, yeah. bad word, process what's happening. And he doesn't have that time until he's on the highway which I think is when he thinks, you know, that's when yeah. he has clarity of thought. Or flashbacks. Yeah. On one level, this is a story that's totally grounded in, in realistic things. We can see this Holiday Inn. We can see this highway. You know this road. On another level, the whole kind of backdrop to me feels sort of surreal. You know, he's sitting in this motel lobby with this invasive soundtrack of murder looping 
behind him. And no, you know, no TV show, no news show is going to replay graphic murder over and over and over mm. without stopping. It's not quite a realistic landscape somehow. There's something sort of dreamlike about it. And, and also the idea that they're having a hot rod convention in the middle of a blizzard, you know. Right. None of it quite rings as as real. It does have the sort of tenor of a dream or a strange, uh, a slightly slightly nightmarish um, scene as a background. And, the, and then both of them referring to themselves as, as being in limbo. Yeah. And it's happening... Presumably during an election, it looks like you know they're painting the country blue and red, and and he, the TV guy, is um, sweeping his hand over the country and turning states blue, you know, blue or red yeah. randomly. Yeah. And um, uh, so I think that's very Sam Shepard esque. If I, uh, <laughs> if I don't know if somebody's used that term before, but to sort of you put it well where it seems very realistic but if, but it's heightened for sure and um he had such a knack i think for slipping in different aspects of americana in a combination that never quite overdoes it and it still feels kind of appropriately banal in a way you know where this cycle of murder um caught on film is uh replayed and um and used to sell advertising and to the point where LaShondra doesn't even notice it anymore and just it's part of the white noise of her life. But, you know, and then it, the next time he looks at the TV, there, <clears throat> there's a guy sort of offhandedly um, dividing the country in two and pitting the colors against each other. And I, th- I thought that, that was like a nice surprise at the end that he sort of included that too, and it's such a sign of when the story was written because the blue and red was pretty new back in 2009. Like, that's not a very old concept. That was done by one of the TV networks, you know, less than 10, 12 years ago when they came up with the blue and red. Right, right. That also feels very, uh, very much of our moment. <laughs> yeah, this could have been written yesterday for sure. I think yeah. that uh, there's not much of Shepard's work that's dated ever. I mean, I don't. I can't think of anything that is is really dated. I think all of his stuff is very timelessly American, and I don't think it'll ever change. I think toast will always be a part of our lives. For example, if you go back <laughs> to True West, and uh, I don't think anybody ever got it better uh, than he did in terms of what life is like, especially outside of the cities and in these in between places. And in everything he wrote, you really feel the vastness of the land in both its, you know, liberation and um, and loneliness and just how mm-hmm. incredibly uh, wide open and sad that can be and how every so often you might find another human and then have to decide whether that person is a friend or foe. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that you have a contrast between this this you know vast landscape he's crisscrossing and this time forty years ago when they're in such a cramped small space they have to sit on the bed you know with their knees touching to eat their their wheat germ in the mornings a more contained time which is datable you know they can date it to to the riots after Martin Luther King was assassinated and it's it's grounded and now neither of these people is grounded at all you know he's floating and she's she's lost everything even her house she can't access 
Yeah. When you think about the trajectory from, you know, 20 to, to 60, it should be the other way around. <laughs> right, right. He should be in a more settled place with the comforts of home and, um, and regularity. Yeah, I like that sort of um, reversal in a way. I didn't um, connect the, uh, the, the bowl held between the knees, um, which is such a great way of saying... We lived uh, in close quarters and yeah, without we didn't have a much. Table. <laughs> we didn't have a table. And, but, you know, I love these stories where you know every place they're talking about, too. You know, like I know those apartments on St. Mark's Place and um, uh, been in way too many of them way back in the day. And, um, and when everything rings true, you just, uh, there's nothing worse than reading a story where you know the place and it's not right. You know, or you think, oh, God, that's not how it was at all. It's not or you generalize it or you uh, give it some sort of um, Gaussian blur. You know, like there's always something so, so finely chiseled and just right when Shepard describes a place. Right, and that string of memories as he's driving away, you know, it's all of these images of, of New York in the 60s or 70s. Um, it's like a silent movie kind of flowing and and of course those memories are shepherds or were shepherds memories as well as yeah. stewards and there's a blurring there because i think we're supposed to see that we're supposed to understand that these were also shepherds memories yeah i think he you know i think he's very i want to think that he was very open to the reader blurring those two i mean the the last book of his i read the one inside just so many of the stories are uh, hewed so closely to at least the biography that we know and the locations that we know where he lived. And um, he liberates himself with fiction, but I think, it, I think it's okay to feel like we're being told some version of something that happened in Shepard's life, which is, you know, I think um, I, I want to be allowed to think of him as, this, uh, as the same guy, as um, some kind of combination of the guy in days of heaven and the guy and the right stuff. And um, just as a side note, uh, I, saw, I just saw The Right Stuff again recently, which just holds up. It's such an incredible movie. It's uh, one of the great American films of all time, and um, it deserves to be seen and reseen and reassessed and uh, held up, I think. it's um, And it's so odd, oddly structured in so many ways. It's not traditional in any way. It's so long. It's just uh, one of my favorite films. It's, I think it's a uh, top ten ever. It also speaks to Shepard's sort of cross-genre abilities, you know, that he, he could act, he could perform, he could write screenplays, he could write plays, and he could write prose. And, you know, having written dozens of plays, I, I find it sort of interesting that in his last years he was writing fiction primarily, you know, and his he, he didn't, publish a novel until the last year of his life and that year he published two yeah so yeah i mean i wonder why why that was his sort of form of choice at the end i wonder too i think it it's you know putting on a play i think is a really it's a very emotionally uh draining experience it's a lot of work for the playwright if they want to see it through through rehearsals and there's something so kind of, you know, being alone, being able to write a novel alone wherever you are is um, definitely 
favors somebody that uh, doesn't want to hew to a schedule and to sort of get up and be responsible for a bunch of actors and technicians and working with a bunch of people. I think that those books are so personal, what he wrote later in his life. And he went back so far, you know, um, some of the memories that are in those books. And not that those stories couldn't have come out in, in, in the form of a play, but I think that there's something sort of more immediate and uh, less reliant, I guess, on a, on a collective to bring to fruition. You know, when you write a book, it's just you. Yeah. And um, you don't have to ask or discuss or compromise or anything. Um, it's just, it's uh, completely unmediated and unfiltered and um, for better, for worse, you know. And he was thinking very specifically about his own life. And, and he, I mean, you also do feel that here, especially with that stream of, of memories. I also, in preparing for the podcast, found out that Shepard did drive through normal Illinois in, in early 2009. <laughs> so it really made me wonder if he had an encounter at a Holiday Inn. Yeah, um, did he get, he got uh, pulled over, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, down Bloomington Normal. Um, yeah, I remember that because I'd been on that highway. I, uh, I got pulled over, the one time I really got pulled over for going really fast was a little further south um, in Illinois, down in there at the tip now, uh, southern Illinois. And um, the only time I was ever really busted for like 35 miles over. But these roads are, you don't see a soul for hours in some parts of, you know, rural Illinois. So um, you can uh, really lose track of what, where you are <laughs> or how fast you're going or um, it's just farms. And so um, I remember uh, reading about that and thinking, you don't hear too many guys in there. I don't know how old he would have been then, but maybe 70? Um, oh, younger he'd be, would have been in his sort of early to mid-60s, I think. Probably the same age as Stuart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? It's uh, You don't want to presume too many uh, things, but uh, obviously he often knows what he's talking about. Well, I want to go back to that to that motel lobby. He has this encounter with Becky. She goes up to her room, and they say goodbye and then he, he says, Stuart says, you know, if he had a gun, he would shoot up the whole lobby. He wants to shoot up the TVs, the coffee table, the magazines. Where does that response come from? What is is it anger over what Becky's had to suffer that he's feeling sympathy for? Is it just feeling, I don't know, contained, cons- constrained in some way? Yeah, I, um, I think Elvis was mentioned earlier. Um, so... You think of Elvis shooting his TV. I think it's a, it's a uniquely American form of expression. <laughs> um, when a man doesn't know how to say something, he thinks of a gun. Uh, and it's, it's a really uh, true and incredibly uh, tragic fact of our lives that it is a form of speech. I know, you know that that's just as true as anything that anyone's ever written, that a guy in that situation, he doesn't know what he wants, doesn't know how to express himself. He's uh, just feeling like he doesn't have the answer. The answer has not arrived to him yet. It'll arrive later when he's driving through a blizzard. But for that moment, he doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't know if he, what to say to this woman, if he, he can't fix what she's going through and he wants to be able to fix it. And that sort of sense of powerlessness is, it's almost inevitable that he's going to have visions of violence. 
and um and the way to express it is to shoot up the place um you know that's another thing uh, that Shepard just got you know that he uh he understood so well I don't know if there are men in other parts of the world that think the same way but I do know that that's how a vast swath of American men think is yeah. uh, when I can't find an answer and I can't fix a problem, um, maybe a gun, maybe I can express it this way. And then something strange happens on the drive. He goes out in his car. He ha- he sees Becky sort of appears in front of him with a halo of snow around her head and this kind of almost hallucination. He then sees all of these memories from the past he turns around and he comes across this jackknife tractor trailer which has to be an image of of death you know there's no sign of the driver and he chooses in a sense chooses life by going back but maybe that's too simplistic a way of reading it no that's exactly it well well put you know yeah that's he's the guy in the truck for sure there's no there's no one else so that's what he could be if he went off and continued on his own that night or at all. He could be that um, wreck on the side of the road. Because what are you doing? You're driving off into the white, blinding nothingness, right? So it's almost like that's to go really far um, with this. Is is he ready to drive off into eternity or is he going to share... Uh, comforts, human comforts for one more night, you know, or at least turn around and pause. It's like, you know, perilous to kind of turn around and choose a different way because he was heading south, you know, in a blizzard with no destination really that we know of um, so well or no, we don't know who he's going to see, you know. It's not like he's going to a home or his daughter's home or a son's home or whatever he's going out into into nothing. And so, um, yeah, choosing to come around and be uh, humble and uh, and ask for a place to stay and make that step and be a little bit vulnerable and a little bit needing of somebody and um, to take a risk, you know, and certainly getting himself into a mess, you know, yeah. with uh, a woman who has so much else to worry about and think about but at the very least um they each have somebody to lean on uh for a night there's a lot going on in in uh what seems to be a um otherwise uh you know uh deceptively deceptively straightforward you know? yeah you know i mean who would think to write a story about a holiday in lobby you know like what <laughs> but you know uh it ultimately is a uh it it does it's such a hopeful story in the end in a way it, it even though there's some uh tough subject matter it has a warmth about it and a kind of a a glow about it i find it incredibly poignant at the end because he, you know he has that line earlier on where he says he's he's finally broken all connections without even really wanting to and then at the very end he you know he asks to if he can call Becky and Lashandra says, "Well, let me get you connected." And mm. you just I feel those two uses of that word resonating, you know, that he he's he lost all his connections, but now maybe he's going to make one. Make yeah. a new one or restore an old one. 
Yeah, good find. I like that. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see that one. We leave him weeping on the phone, but what do you think happens next? Is he going to stay the night? Is he going to stay longer? Is he going to wake up feeling awkward and sneak out at five in the morning? Um, I, you know, I think he's absolutely going to stay. You know, he's so struck by the simple innocence of her voice that he breaks open and everything that he's been sort of holding back and, you know, instead of expressing himself with a, with violence, he thankfully finds this other way too because she uh, is going to give him a home at least for a night and um, the hardness of the world is going to be kind of uh, countered for a night and, um, and I think he's just so grateful to be given... Uh, Another chance, and um, what happens after that night? I don't know. I I, I want to think that it will be a uh, a good thing for both of them, <laughs> at least for a short time. You know, a solace. Sometimes I I want to believe that they all they need is a little bit of mercy and tenderness for a night or two, and um, and then they have to get back on to whatever is next. Especially for her, we assume he has trouble in his past, but we know that she has trouble in her present and, um, and a lot to do. And, um, yeah, maybe that's act two. (laughs) They go off searching for her husband and her kids. That's why I think I come away with it with, uh, uh, I think such a warm feeling. I think it just feels like mercy. I feel for this guy. He, uh, a guy who's 65 or 70 and, you know, it would be tough, I think, to be, uh, feel so alone at that age. I don't think we, none of us want to feel that. I don't think we presume that we will, you know, you want him to be given, uh, some kind of lifeline. And, um, I think it's a hard one and well-earned end here that gives us just enough feeling that he's, uh, he's going to make it. And I hope yeah. he doesn't doesn't leave his dog out in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if they have a no-dog policy? What's going to happen? Well, Chandra's going to have to have mercy, too. Maybe he's got a service dog permit or something like that. you got to think about the dog, too. What better way to ruin a story, right? To be like, well, what about the dog? And the, he, Where's the dog going to be? And Do they have enough food for the dog? And is the dog going to get in the way if they're trying to get romantic? And, you know, just... Uh, that's the the best uh, way to workshop a story into the ground, right? Well, that's um, that's the beauty of the story. He he left that off the page. Yeah, yeah. No, he always knew what not to say, right? I think uh, needn't be said. Uh, I, I love that. Thanks for letting me uh, do this. Thank you so much for doing it. Sam Shepard, who died last year at age 73, was the author of more than 50 plays, including A Lie of the Mind, True West, Fool for Love, and Buried Child, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. He also published several books of fiction, including the story collection Day Out of Days and the novel The One Inside. Dave Eggers is the founder of the publishing house and literary journal McSweeney's and a co-founder of 826 Valencia, a youth literacy center, Voice of Witness, a human rights-focused oral history series, and Scholar Match, which connects donors with students in financial need. He's the author of 12 books, including the novels Heroes of the Frontier, The Circle, and The Wild Things. 
a new novel, The Parade, will be published in March. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Dave Eggers reads Roddy Doyle's story, Bullfighting. Or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.